Well, let's just jump right in, guys. Uh, we've been in this series for a little bit now, Alternate Reality. And this series has been specifically set up going into next week. And so there's a reason that we've been doing all of this and kind of laying a foundation for it. The definition of the word reality is the world of the state of things as they actually exist as opposed to an idealistic or notional idea of them. In other words, what is real of what we can see? We've been looking at this, this the differentiation through Scripture of being in this world but not of it. Looking at the ideas of that you and I as Bible-believing Christian, our reality is based on what Scripture says because that is the words of God. There's a big debate out there, and you're going to hear it, and there's a bunch of stuff, nonsense that's going on out there in the world, but talking about, well, we don't worship a book. That's a true statement, is it? Yep. We do not worship a book. We worship God. So what does that book have to do with anything? Because it was written by man, correct? Correct. It was written by man. So why do we use it? We use it because it captures the words of God. And not only the words, but inside of that, we can also see God's character, His will and desires, His plans ultimately, how we relate into all of those things. All of that matters. And so it's not just like, oh hey, you know, this is the Bible and this is words to live by. There are a lot of holy books that are out there. Lots of them. It's not a list of do's and don'ts. It's not a list of rules. There are things that it tells you to do. There are things it tells you to avoid. Okay? But that is not the crux of what the book's is. The book is describing to you and I who God is, what He does, how you and I relate. It tells us who our enemy is. All of these different things that are out there. And if we didn't have Scripture, all of the ideas that we have about God would be strictly an opinion. Because we'd have nothing to compare it to that would be verifiable. Because do you know this? I know this sounds crazy. Truth matters. It matters. Feelings don't. Opinions don't. If they're not grounded in truth. It all comes back to that. So we've been looking at John chapter 17, verse 13. It says, but now I come to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word. The world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified by the feelings that they have. By the opinions that they hold. No, it's by the truth. Not your truth. You know there is no such thing as your truth. That does not exist. It's not real. There's the truth. We find the truth in Scripture. Why is Jesus laying this out here like this? See, John is capturing the words of Christ here. That's all he's doing. He's writing down what took place. What happened, what he saw, what Jesus said. All of that matters. He says the world is going to hate them. Because they're not of the world. They're outsiders. They're sojourners. They're pilgrims in this world. They're not a part of it. And because they don't sound like the world, and they don't look like the world, and they don't act like the world, it's going to hate them. Why? Because it hated me. I'm not of the world either. Was Jesus a sojourner on the earth? Absolutely. Absolutely. You see, you and I need to think as Christ thought. We need to see as Christ saw. We need to act as Christ acted. We need to be like Christ is. 
to when I say all of those words, what immediately comes to your mind? I can hear this one word, summed up in one word. It's a buzzword today. It's love. Right? Is anybody else sick of hearing that? Because I am. It's, it's p- painful. It's kind of like in the church world for a long time, and Terry will relate to this. There, always, there was a buzzword that was used in the church world that wasn't well defined. But it was a buzzword that was used when you're talking, when I say church world, I mean the organization of the church among ministers and people that were putting on the services. It was the word excellence. Am I right, Terry? Yeah. Terry, do you like that word anymore? He does not like that word. And if Terry doesn't like it, neither should you. Those are God's rules, okay? Because what does that mean? What does excellence mean? Nobody could define it. I defined it. Because do you realize when we think of excellence, if you go to a concert, okay, and if it's excellent, what are you expecting? A good show. Nobody's singing off key? That's a good thing, right? The drummer's on beat? Another good thing, right? Oh, those are wonderful things. Lighting cues that are accurate? This is why I don't go to concerts. See, I used to sit in the back and do lights and all that kind of stuff, and when they miss a cue, drives me insane. When the drummer's off beat, it drives me insane. When they miss their cue to come in, I can sense it, okay? I don't know if six senses are real, but I have it, and it drives me insane. So I no longer enjoy the music. All I do is critique it. And guess what? They're all better than me by a long shot. But here's the thing, they, they have all of these things laid out in a certain way, and it's like, man, that was excellent. But in the church world, what does it mean to do things with excellence? Nobody could define it. And I used the same verbiage, but I had a, a definition of it. It's doing the best you can with what you have. Because if you're going to take our small church in rural America and compare it to some mega church, there's nothing we are going to do that will compare to what they do right? They have seven guitar players. Some of them play one string the entire time. That's no joke. They have one string that they play the entire time because it adds that little background noise that you're hearing. They have a keyboard player that plays what's called pads. And here's what they do. It's one note, then the next note, then the next note. That's all they do. Is that a skilled musician? No, you could train a chimp to do that. You could train the chimp or be that. Okay, good. Either way, I mean, we know you're, you're versed in training chimps, right? No? Too early? I was pointing at Steve, that's all right. It's early, tough crowd, right in his heart, yeah, exactly. But I mean, but they have tracks, yeah. There are things, I mean, so what is excellence? You know what I'm saying? Like, we can't define it. What is love? Well, there's only one way to define it. How does Scripture define it? It is not embracing your feelings. Your feelings will lie to you, often, and they do. The enemy will use your feelings against you. I have seen some people come against well-known ministers that everybody in this room would have great respect for and think, you know, there's Jesus and then there's this person, they're right here. And I have watched people attack them who once loved them because their feelings got off, they didn't like what they were preaching or didn't like what they were doing in that moment, and of course they always know more. And so what do they do? They try to stir up a crowd around them, they gossip, they, they, they just do all of this stuff, all because of their feelings. Was any of what they were saying true? No, but their feelings was telling them, so they were looking for people to confirm that. You see, we've got to get above that kind of stuff. You and I are not of this world. 
but we are in it. So the lens of which we view things comes strictly from the lens of God himself. The question we ask is if something is right or wrong, how do we answer that? We turn to Scripture. What does Scripture say on the matter? In 1 John chapter 2, verse 3, it says, Now by this we know that we know Him if we keep His commandments. He who says, I know Him and does not keep His commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in Him. But whoever keeps His word, truly the love of God has perfected Him. And by this we know that we are in Him. He who says He abides in Him ought Himself also to walk, just as He walked. You see, when we talk about the image of God, we are His image or representative on this earth. Should we walk just as He walked? We should. Now what does that mean? Again, what always comes to mind? Got to be loving. You just embrace everybody. You keep hearing this, this verbiage being thrown out. Sometimes it's memes. I love memes. Okay? I'm pro-meme. Just so you know. If you're friends with me on Facebook, you know I like memes. If you see me sharing a bunch of them in one day, you know I've been driving that day. Because that's what I do to pass the time is I get my meme quota out. I owe Mark Zuckerberg called me and says, Chris, I need you to share a certain number each day. And I am doing my part. None of that's true, just in case you were believing that. But here's the thing, when we look at this, that we look at this, this theology, here's what the buzzword is, just love everybody, God will sort them out later. Is that a true statement? It is true. We love everybody, and God is going to sort them out later. But that is not the intent of the meme. The intent of the meme is to just leave them alone, and let them be them, and God will take care of them. The problem is, is God is going to sort them out later, and there are eternal consequences with that. So by loving them, we tell them the truth. The truth of what Scripture says. Not your truth, not my truth, the truth. Sanctify them by the truth. So as we've talked about, when Jesus came on this earth, He didn't come on this earth as God, all-knowing, all-powerful, all of that. He came as a man, and He grew into that. We see in Luke chapter 2, verse 51, it says, Then He went down with them, and came to Nazareth, and was subject to them. But His mother kept all these things in her heart, and Jesus increased in wisdom, and stature, and in favor with God and men. Here's what we know about God. God does not increase in wisdom. He does not increase in stature. And He does not increase in favor with Himself. Right? That'd be like you taking a straw poll. It's like, oh, do I want to go to the buffet today or do I want to eat a salad? All in favor say, I, I'm the only one voting. Buffet wins it. You don't do that. You see, what he's showing here is that Jesus came onto earth as a man. He performed no miracles until the Spirit of God came upon him. We see that in the early parts of all the gospel. He grew in his understanding of who he was. He grew in his understanding of the will of his father. He grew in his understanding of how God worked. And he noticed something, that God never moved in mysterious ways. It was always predictable patterns. He grew in his understanding of the authority that had been given to him, not only as, a, as, as Messiah, but also as a demonstration as a man on this earth. But how did he grow in that understanding? It wasn't shining lights, it wasn't angels from heaven, it was none of that. He read the scriptures. To do what Jesus did, we have to think like he thought. We have to see like he saw. And what you see will determine what is real to you. The things of this earth is not our reality. That is the truth. The things of this earth are all temporary. It says to store up for yourself treasures in heaven. What does this world tell? Store up for yourself treasures. You're going to need them. You want to retire someday. Don't misunderstand me. It is important to be a good steward. 
But our focus isn't on the storehouses here. As I said, God will open up the windows and pour out blessings on you that there won't be room enough to receive it. What did you have to do? Simply steward what he gave you. You didn't have to do anything else. That does mean getting a job sometimes. Not checking your mailbox to see if God put it on somebody's heart to mail you a check that day. But our treasures are in heaven because that's where our focus is. We think spiritually. We act based on the truth of Scripture. That is why we are not moved by what is going on in this world. When the world is getting scary, it doesn't matter because God has overcame it. When we sing that is the name above all names, we either believe that or we don't. And if it is true that it is the name above all names, and at that name every knee will bow, and that we are sealed by the promise of the Holy Spirit with the name of Jesus, then what do we have to fear? Nothing. But what do we fear? A lot. We got to get real. You see how Jesus grew as he was reading the scriptures and understanding what was seen. And we talked about this. The 12 spies, the two different viewpoints. One believed what God had promised and one believed what was right in front of them. And the right in front of them won the debate. They never entered the promised land, but God said it was theirs for the taking. You have the story of David and Goliath. You had a group of people that had apparently forgotten what God had said. And you had a young man who was delivering the cheese. I'll never stop saying that. He was delivering the cheese. And said, who is this dude? He is defying the armies of the living God. So he grabbed a rock, hit him in the head, cut off his head, carried it around with him. A little keepsake. You had Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who stood in the face of political pressure to not bow because God told them, you do not bow to anything else. And so while everybody around them was doing it, to do what? Protect their lives. Because they knew the consequences if they did. So they all bowed to the pressure except for these three. And Nebuchadnezzar said, listen, if you're ready when the music starts, you bow. And if not, I'll throw you in the furnace. And they said, listen... You start the music. But if you choose to throw us in, my God will save us. Why? Because he had promised. But if you choose not to throw us in, just understand something. We will never bow. Did God get proved true? Absolutely. Did he work in a mysterious way? He couldn't have because they knew what God would do. There's a difference between what God said and what I see. What they saw was instant death. What God said is, you keep my commandments, and you'll be blessed. That's the difference. We live in a world today that is based on what you see, what you hear, what you feel. And unfortunately, as a church, a church, big C church, is that we don't go back to what God said. Do you realize that when you stand on the promises of God, you will sound like a psychopath in this world? That you will have people of the church come against you? When there is a scary pandemic that goes around and you got a bunch of people that are fearful and in hiding and all of that and that when the church says, wait a minute, it says that God will heal. God does heal. That he paid for that at the moment of his death on the cross. And we're just going to stand on God's promises. Do you realize that there will be people outside of the church that will come against you? Do you realize that there will be people inside of the church that will come against you? But somebody has to stand on what God said and not just what I see. When the world around us is crashing, we stand on what God said. You see, we have to 
take it as that we are sojourners on this earth. That means we are in a world that we are not a part of, but that we are his representatives. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, it says, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitations. Who are we honoring? God in what we do. We are sojourners and pilgrims. Therefore, we abstain from the fleshly lust, which is defined in multiple places in Scripture. We don't partake of that. Those things war against our soul. Our soul needs to be redeemed by the Word of God. But we conduct ourselves honorable among all the Gentiles, which is what? The people not in covenant with God. And when they speak at you as an evildoer, let your good works shine, that they will glorify God. No matter what is going on, we stand on the Word of God. We separate ourselves from the world. And I showed you all those pictures last week of all the different groups. By Just by simply looking at them, we could see something. We knew what they were. Do you realize that we didn't hardly get any of them wrong? We pretty much knew what every one of, 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 every one of them was just by the image. And the reason that they look that way, they dress that way, they act that way, is because their belief system tells them that they must do that. So therefore, we recognize it because their belief system tells them that they have to dress a certain way, act a certain way, talk a certain way pray at certain times a day, face a certain direction and bow down for prayer and all these other different things. None of which in and of themselves are bad, but it is defining characteristic of that group. So therefore we recognize them. But when I ask you, what does a Christian look like? There is no look that a Christian has. It is a state of being of which we are. We abstain from fleshly lust. We stand on the word of God. And what God said is true, I don't get to debate with it. You might find this hard to believe, but God has yet to ask my opinion about anything. He's never come to me, he's like, you know, I'm kind of on the fence about this. Chris, what do you think? You're all wise and powerful, right, Ethan? That was your opportunity, he missed it. Wow, okay, all right. You just got your pay doc. So, anyway, but the thing is, guys, it's like, we are trying to do that today because when you ask somebody in this world, what is a Christian? I believe in Christ and Christ is all loving and all of this and everybody's going to get to heaven and all these other, all these different things. It's not a matter of doing. It is a matter of being. And we have to be a certain way, which brings us into what we're talking about and what we're going into for next week. We're bringing in Chad Gonzalez and I'm going to keep going through some scripture here because I want you to see some things. But this is something that I have been praying about for several years. And let me explain. Okay? Now, Chad and I went to Rhema together. We both graduated in 2003. I have not seen or talked to the man since 2003. No idea. But I have been praying because, let me tell you something. There is a lot of stuff, noise out there in the church world that seems good. And there's a lot of big name preachers out there that you watch and, and to put this in a term that maybe, well, if you're from Texas, you'll understand. They're all hat, but no cattle. In other words, they talk a big game. And you'll see some demonstrations in their meetings. But that doesn't mean that those demonstrations are always the Holy Spirit. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying they're the devil either. 
But we have a tendency to easily get worked up. Because if you're a charismatic speaker and you've got really good music, you can get people energized and excited and they will do certain things. And all of that is not necessarily bad. But I don't want to just be energized. I don't want to be entertained. I want an encounter with the Holy Spirit. And when it comes to our belief system of what Scripture clearly says to me, that God's will is to heal all every single time, the reality is, is we just simply don't see it. Which tells me one of a couple of things. Either our understanding of Scripture is wrong, which I don't think it is, or we're missing the secret sauce, something in there. Because I don't know about you, but I want to be so confident that I can stand up against Nebuchadnezzar and say, throw me in there. God will save us. But when it comes to healing, I'm not that confident. I know what Scripture says. It's so clear to me. And guys, I've spent years studying this. For 15 years, I have been frustrated by this subject, to put it into perspective. And I have prayed, God, what am I missing? What am I not seeing? Because if I'm off in my theology in any way, please correct me. Show me in Scripture. Please correct me. And I've yet to get a correction in my belief system. Because many will tell you, well, it's got to be God's will to heal. Well, how can we pray that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven if we don't know what your will is? How can we ever have confidence in praying in anything? Why do we need to pray for it if we can't know what your will is? So it's not a matter of he's powerful enough. Of course he's powerful enough. We just don't know how he's going to act. You know what that screams to me? He works in mysterious ways. That term has been an excuse used by the church. And we've had a lot of those. And if you've heard me and you've been around, I don't like excuses. I don't like them in my own life. I don't let my children make them. I just don't. If you're not the starting point guard at basketball, that means you didn't earn it. Don't whine about it. My kids don't do this, okay? Because they're, they've got my athletic traits. So the starting point guard is probably never going to happen. No offense to you. But, but the thing is, it's like, go earn it. Prove to them you're the best. Don't make excuses for anything. Just own whatever your screw-up is. If your belief system isn't strong enough to what God said, that's cool. We can deal with that, but own it. Admit it. Let's grow from there. And so here we have a man who is seeing incredible results, who I have vetted for weeks before I called him. And got on the phone, we reconnected, all this kind of stuff, and he started telling me some of the different things. Yeah, But I was looking for characteristics. I wanted somebody who was humble, I wanted somebody that didn't come in and say, yeah, God's just anointed me with this gift. You'll hear next week. That's not the case. His perspective is who God created us to be. That means what he did is what we should be doing. Because what he does is what Jesus did. And as we said and read for several weeks, we walk as Jesus walked. I wanted somebody that didn't come in with this haughty attitude or anything like that. Also, another thing is, is that a lot of guys now, yeah, they'll come into any meeting. Here's the bill to do that. I just don't play that game at all. If somebody says, yeah, our minimum fee is X, Y, Z, I was like, thanks for your time. I appreciate it. And we move right on. Because I just don't mess with that. Because I don't think that's right. I used to travel and speak some. I don't do it very much anymore. I've never once ever charged a church for anything. In fact, I pay my own way there, and I've always refused the honorarium as they tried to give it. Do you know why? Because I make an income. I don't need their money. Use your money. Go buy new drums. They're really cool. See, I was looking for somebody that had it, and I am believing that what's going to happen next week is going to be a catalyst and a starting point. 
as we get our minds right, because it all comes right here, that we'll just stop talking and we'll start acting. We'll start being who Christ made us to be. So I'm praying and believing of what God is going to do next week. I couldn't hardly sleep last night. I woke up so many times. I was telling them, I woke up at midnight thinking, oh man, it's time to get up. I'm energized. Let's do this. And I looked at the clock. I'm like, no, why are you midnight? Why can't you be six? Because I just can't stop thinking about this. So let's keep going in scripture. We'll come back. John chapter three. Now we know in John chapter three, what happens? For God so loved the world. There's that love word. That he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And what leads to that verse is this interaction that Jesus has with the Pharisee. And that Pharisee's name is Nicodemus. And Nicodemus was kind of a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was one that the Pharisees looked up to. And he came to Jesus by night because he didn't want anybody else to know what was going on. He says, listen, I know you're from God because nobody can do what you do unless they're sent from God. Now, here's a question. What would that translate in today's world if that was us? When we hear of somebody who's sick with cancer and we go lay hands on them, the man or woman of God shows up, puts their hands on them, and they're instantly healed. And what would they say? We know you're from God because nobody can do what you do unless they are. So these signs was, got, was what got Nicodemus' attention. And they go into this whole dialogue of what must I do? And he says, you must be born again. And he's so confused. He's like, whoa, 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 whoa. How does that work? And then you must be born of water and you must be born of the Spirit. And he goes into this whole thing. And at, after all of that, we're going to start at verse 22. I want you to see something. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea. And there he remained with them. And what did he do? He baptized. Now, you know what baptism is because I've explained it in a Jewish context. Not what it is today. Because the way we baptize people today is nothing like that they did back then. So let me explain it again just in case you've forgotten. Whenever somebody would become a disciple of a new rabbi, in other words, they were confounded by the beliefs that this new teacher had, and they realized, I want to be a follower of that person. They would baptize that person, and it was a sign to the world that they are a follower of whoever this teacher happens to be. So when John was baptizing people, it was a cry to the world that they were disciples of John. Well, here we see who is baptizing. Jesus, which implies what? How many disciples did Jesus have? He had a lot. How many of you guys thought 12 right away? Can't help yourself, can you? See, every person, Paul just pointed at Sherry, that's hilarious. Every person that was baptized by Jesus was declaring to the Jewish world that I am a disciple of this rabbi. Now, they may not have understood everything at that point, but this is what's going on. How many disciples did Jesus have? It's innumerable. Why did 4,000 people show up and he had to feed them? Why did 5,000 people show up and he had to feed them? Could, is it possible that he baptized that many people? Why not? We don't know. Let's go on. Verse 23. Now John also was baptizing in and on near Salem because there was much water there and they came and were baptized. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. 
Where did John baptize? The Jordan River. Where's he baptizing here? Not the Jordan River. You see these things that we have in our mind that we just assume? We just assume that John had a spot. If you go to Israel today, can you get baptized where John baptized people? Yeah. Is that where John baptized people? We have no idea. There, he didn't leave a sign. But do they get people to do it? Yes. Why? Because we're dumb tourists and we'll fall for anything. I told you guys about the burning bush, didn't I? Have I ever told you that? Let me explain this. Somebody told me. So they were on a tour bus in Israel. And listen, you, you got to understand something. These tour guides get paid a lot on tips. So the better job they do as a presentation, the more likelihood of getting good tips. And as they were driving through, there had been a fire that had come through the area. And there was this charred bush that was sitting there. And like a bunch of these people were sitting there and they're taking pictures of it. And they're like, is that the burning bush? And like any good tour guide would say, he's like, yes, it was. And people are like, oh my goodness, I guess they were taking pictures in front of it and all this other stuff. Why? Because we're stupid. That's why. Because we don't know our scriptures. Anyway. So, why did he move? Because there was much water there. And this actually is a confirmation because the Jordan gets very shallow to where they couldn't baptize. And they came and were baptized. So you got Jesus that's baptizing and you got John that's baptizing. For John had not yet been thrown into prison. So this is being uh, written after all of that. Verse 25, then there arose a dispute among some, uh, between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. Now, what is being said here? John, the dude that you baptized, now everybody's going to that guy, and he's baptizing them. What about us? There's a conflict that is arising. Look at verse 27. John answered said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. And what he has seen and heard, that he testifies. And no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony is certified that God is true. Now let's stop for a second. John had told people, I'm just the precursor. I'm not the guy. The guy is coming. And then when the guy showed up, he pointed us at, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Of whom these disciples of John testified. The dude that you baptized, now everybody's going to him. John is reminding them of what he had told them. And he says, I must decrease so that he may increase. In other words, I am going to dwindle to nothing. My work is completed because I was the precursor. Now Messiah is here. That's a very humbling statement to make. How many followers did John have? We don't know, but it was in the hundreds of thousands. 
because he was the voice in the wilderness declaring the ways of the Lord. People were following him and now those people are turning from John and focusing to Jesus, which is exactly what he was set to do. I must decrease so that he will increase. He comes from above and is above all. There's a big difference here. Look at verse 34. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God. For God does not give the Spirit by measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. And he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides in him. Does that sound like the Gospel? Not belief that the Son exists. The belief in the Son is putting your faith in Him. But He says something here. It says, God does not give the Spirit by measure. Have you ever heard the term that Jesus... said, there we go, Neil said, I think we can get through one more Sunday. Neil was wrong, folks. <laughs> that's all right. See, doing it with the excellence, letting your mic die in the middle of the service, that's excellence, right? All right. But think about it. See, what, what people have said is that Jesus had the Spirit without measure. In other words, he had a full endowment of it. But you and I are not Jesus. That's a true statement. Here's the problem. That's not what that says. He says that he gives the Spirit without measure. And that implies that we can't walk as Jesus walked. But yet Jesus gave a mandate. Let's keep going. John chapter 5. We'll go forward just a little bit. Verse 19. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself. But what he sees the Father do, for whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does. And he will show him greater works than these, that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. Okay, so what did Jesus do? Everything he saw the Father do. What did Jesus say? Everything he heard the Father say. So was Jesus coming up with his own theology? No. Where did he see things that the Father did? Scripture. Scripture. Where did he hear the voice of God? In Scripture. And yes, don't misunderstand me. Yes, God spoke to Jesus. But we're always going back to the same things that you and I have. That's what I'm trying to get you to understand. Jesus on earth as the, the man of God not simply just God himself, did as an example to you and I of what we should be doing. And we have the same tools available. Look at John chapter 14, verse 8. It says, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Now what does that imply? He is on earth as a representative of the Father. So if you've seen me, you've seen him. 
What does that imply to you and I? We are on earth as a representative of the sun. So when the world sees us, they see the sun. At least they should. Verse 10, do you not believe that I am the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the work. So what does that sound like? That sounds like a representative. The words I speak, I do not speak on my own authority, but on the authority of the one who sent me. Verse 11, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do because I go to my Father. Now, I know we've all heard this. And I know we've all read this. But let me tell you how we have justified this in our minds today. Did he just say, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also? He did. So, what is the precursor to do the works? Belief or faith or trust in him. Right, and then he says, greater works than these he will do, because I go to my Father. And what do we say? Greater in number, but not in demonstration. Because, obviously we have more time on this earth. You hear this said all the time. Maybe you haven't, so I'm teaching you something. These are the excuses we make. So we're not going to do all the things that Jesus did. There'll be no walking on water today, okay? But we're simply going to do them in greater volume because there's more of us than there was of him because he was gone. Let's just say that's true for a moment. Would you settle for simply doing the works that he did? Would that be enough? What did he do? Well, let's think about that. He cast out demons. He healed the sick. He walked on water. He raised the dead. I mean, what else is there? Water to wine? Get the wine, water to Diet Coke? Right? Yeah, instead of multiplying the loaves, like, of the cows for the steaks, like, we just adjusted to fit our narratives, but, I mean, the thing is, guys, is that he just said, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these will he do. Is that a true statement? Is Jesus making a declarative statement of things to come? We have to ask ourselves that, because we do not believe it. We don't believe it at all. If we believed it was true, then we would act completely different than what we do today. Because Jesus never was wondering if it was the Father's will to heal somebody of which he was laying hands upon. As that leper came to him, he didn't have to consult with the Father and say, Lord, is it your will? He just said, you're clean. Go show yourself to the priest. When somebody came in with a dead child... You say, hold on, i got to see if it's the Lord's will. Okay, you pass the test, we're good to go. None of that. He just simply did as the representative of God on that earth. That's it. That's all he was doing. And then he says, greater works will those who believe in me. Will they do? That's all of us in this room. How we doing? got to be truthful. We're not doing well. And the reason is, is we always are waiting on somebody else. We think, okay, well, Chad Gonzalez is going to come in and this guy's getting verifiable miracles. Listen, I am less interested in seeing people's lives transformed through healing. And I am interested in that. Don't misunderstand me. Then I am him teaching us what he's doing. 
And all he's doing is accepting God's word as truth. That's it. And sometimes it just takes a light bulb moment for it to flip on and we're like, oh my goodness, how did I miss this? How was I not doing this? That's what I'm hoping for. Look at Mark chapter 16, verse 15. And he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. These signs will follow those who believe in my name. They will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will take up serpents, and if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. Now, let's go through this very carefully, okay? Are you ready? Who's speaking? Jesus. Who's he speaking to? The twelve. Here we go. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Declarative statement. Command? Yeah. Yeah, did he say, listen, if you feel like it, or pray if it's the Lord's will, or any of that? No. He said, go. Then he says, he who believes and is baptized will be saved. But he who does not believe will be condemned. So there's two. Believe is not just, oh, yeah, I believe that Jesus is, you know, whatever. It is putting your faith and trust. Again, it's a word that we don't understand because we don't look and dig into it. But it's not just simply a belief and changing of the mind here. It is like, no, I am putting my trust in Jesus. That person will be saved. If they don't, they will be condemned. These signs will follow those who believe. In other words, those who are transformed. And then it goes into this whole list, one of which is they will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. doesn't say that they will lay hands on the sick and if it is the Lord's will, they will recover. It doesn't say that. It does not say that they will lay hands on the sick, but ultimately they'll get healing in eternity because they are no longer sick, that they died and they are with the Lord. We've got a million excuses. These are the people, these are not the disciples, not the 12 apostles. These are the people that the 12 apostles have reached out to and have turned into disciples of Christ. Those are the ones who believe. And those people will do all of those things. And I want you to think about this. Because Christianity is the ultimate pyramid scheme. It started with 11. Then they voted in a 12th dude. And then Jesus showed up to a 13th guy. And all of those guys went and said, Now listen, if you give your life to Christ today and give me the name of two of your best friends, I will throw in this vacuum attachment that you are going to love. And it just trickled down. And you and I are here today because the apostles were obedient to the words of Christ. Think about that. Our lineage is traced back to Acts chapter 2. That's crazy. We would not be here today if they all just sat in a room and said, we need to pray if it's the Lord's will that we go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Look at Acts chapter 10, verse 34. Now, this is just an encounter that Peter is having. He's having it with a guy named Cornelius because it's that whole story where the, uh, the sheep comes down, he has that vision. His name was Simon the Tanner. Cornelius is told by God to send for him. Cornelius is a Gentile. Jews and Gentiles don't mix like oil and water. You don't go there. They're unclean. We are clean. They are unclean. We don't go there. So God says Peter, and he has this revelation as a result of the Spirit of God falling on them the same way it fell on the apostles and all those who were with him. In Acts chapter 2, look at verse 34. Acts 10, verse 34. Then Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ. He is the Lord of all. That word you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good in healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Peter's having an aha moment where that light bulb turned on. He's like, wait a minute. This isn't just a Jewish thing. 
This is an all-nation thing. But didn't Jesus say, go to every nation and preach the gospel to every creature? Why did he not understand that? Because sometimes our presuppositions will keep us out of obedience. Regardless, he was obedient to the vision. He goes, and now he has the aha moment. But he gives us a little clue into what Jesus was doing. It says how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil for that was God's will. No, God was with him. He did it. He wasn't waiting. So that implies something, doesn't it? Jesus said the works that I do, they will do. Does that mean that we are anointed with the Holy Spirit and with power to do good and to heal all who are oppressed by the devil for God is with us? Yes, it does. So we need to act like it. Look at another one, Colossians chapter 2, verse 1. Colossians 2, verse 1. For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those, in, uh, and those in Laodicea. And for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. Now let me explain what's happened. This is Paul speaking to the church here. Okay? They haven't seen him. Verse 2, that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. For though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you have been taught abounding in it with thanksgiving now what does that imply how do you walk in somebody what does that even mean like throw on his skin and wear like a suit silence of the lamb style too much uh, to walk in him means you're walking in what he's taught you're walking and what he's doing. You're rooted and built up in him. And what? Established in the faith. Think about it. It says rooted and established. That's an agricultural term. That when a plant does not have a deep root system, it is not established. Therefore, the things on the earth, the outside elements, the lack of water or the sun may scorch it and kill it. But when it is established, it can sustain those things for a much longer period of time. That you are established in the faith. Look at verse 8. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. You are complete in Him who is the head of all principality and power. Now here's the warning from Paul. Now watch out that nobody cheats you through philosophy and empty deceit. Now this is not implying that philosophy is bad. This is implying that bad philosophy is bad. It's according to the tradition of men. According to the basic principles of the world. So what do we see? Bad philosophy, empty deceit, traditions of men, basic principles of this world will cheat you because they are not according to Christ. In other words, they are not grounded in truth. For in Him, in Christ, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And you are complete, which means you are what? Lacking nothing. How are you complete? In Him, who is what? The head of all 
principality and power. So are you complete? Yes, you are. Why? Because God has said so. And if you are complete in Him, and He is the head of all principality and power, then what thing can rise up against you? The answer is nothing. Do we act like that? No. And that's what I'm trying to get us to understand. You see, for several weeks now, I've been trying to lay this foundation so when Chad gets here, that we've got our thinking right. And that we're open to the Word of God, of what He is going to say. I have no idea exactly what to expect next weekend. I know God's going to move powerfully. I know we may have a very large crowd here. I've gotten phone calls. I've, there's a family coming in from Chicago. They are traveling here because their mother needs healing. Why would you drive all that way unless you believed it was possible? I know that there will be somebody here that's currently got lymphoma, and we're going to watch God move. But I'm less interested in watching people get healed as I am getting an understanding of how God moves and how we should be acting. This isn't just for y'all. This is for me too. Because just like you, I at times lack that confidence. And, I, and people will hear me say that and they're like, you're kidding me. You seem a little overconfident at times. And that's probably true. The thing is, is I know what the Word says. It's time that we walk in the fullness thereof and be obedient to it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we are so grateful for all your promises that you have done. And Lord, we just pray as we are preparing our hearts for next week that your spirit is moving and that we are soft hearts and open minds, that we are ready for you to change our lives forever. So Lord, I just pray that as you draw these people near, that nothing will stand in their way, that they will be ready to be touched by you and that we are going to see miracles take place because you have promised them. Lord, I thank you that we have soft hearts and that you are going to change our lives forever and that our lives will be an example of your will and your goodness every single day. And we give you all the glory. It's in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys. We'll see you next week.